you know, I, I learned actually pretty late that it's not about quantity, it's about quality. I, I remember the days where I used to have 2000 accounts. I never thought that was enough accounts for me to call. I'm like, we need, I, I'm, I don't have enough accounts. And now in today's day and age, it's really the opposite. You can have 5 million accounts, but you really got to find that ICP or that IAP, whatever you want to call it in today's day and age around ABM, that's really in your sweet spot. Like who's going to really, who's going to resonate? Welcome to the B2B Digitized Podcast, where leaders of B2B technology startups and scale-ups learn how to use digital transformation to differentiate, educate, build trust, improve competitive positioning, close sales faster without compromise, and scale revenue growth. Now here's your host, Joshua Feinberg from SP Home Run. Hi, it's Joshua Feinberg from the B2B Digitized podcast, and I have a very special guest here with me today, Sam Capra, who is the VP of Sales at Flex Engage in Orlando. I've actually known Sam for several years, dating back to us being involved in a marketing-related organization here in Florida. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Joshua, thank you for having me. Yeah, I mean, that feels like we were talking about it offline. That feels like that was uh, two lifetimes ago. Everything in Digital marketing seems to, it's like looking at the lifetime of a pet compared to a lifetime of a human. It just goes, and then of course the last 18 months, like, yeah. Yeah, everything is COVID, post-COVID. That's kind of how people are gonna start verbalizing things. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so the first place I usually like to start out with these interviews is for you to give the viewers, listeners, readers a little bit of context on your background, um, how you ended up in your current role heading up sales at Flex Engage. Did you know that you always wanted to get into sales? Um, was this kind of your, your calling? No, not at all, man. I would love to say that, uh, that I was destined to be in sales. It really fell into it. Um, you know, like most, at least most of my colleagues and friends and mentors, we seem to all kind of have the same story. Uh, my dad was in sales. Uh, he sold anything and everything. And I was kind of always around it. And he used to sell on the phone as well as, you know, face-to-face -face cold calling. And he'd bring me out on sales calls. Like when they had no one else to watch the kids, he'd bring me in the car, tell me to sit there and wait. I see him go knock on doors. And then he'd come back to the car and basically debrief with himself. And I kind of picked up on it. I kind of liked it. And then as I got out of college, I really just liked the ability to, you know, really own my own destiny. You know, if I wanted to make a hundred thousand, it's all up to what I want to sell from a commission standpoint. I'm not locked into a desk, not locked into a pay structure. I can really, you know, map my own future. And that's really where it all started. Um, and so it, I, I don't have a great story around, hey, I always wanted to be a salesperson. It just happens to be what I am. And I am fundamentally passionate about it. I mean, that's one thing I am passionate about is B2B sales and just the craft of sales itself. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You bring up the story with your dad. My yeah. dad was an accountant and I remember as a kid going to work with him sometimes on Saturdays and yeah. he was in retail. And I remember there were some cool aspects of it. This yeah. was pre-PC, this was pre-PC, I think towards the later yeah. stage of his career in the nineties, he eventually yeah. got like Lotus one, two, three, but remember the green ledger paper to adding machine. I do. Paper. But was especially cool is I remember when we were in elementary school and my sister was really bummed that Cabbage Patch Kids were like the item to have. He was able to pull right. strings because he worked for a retailer and right. you know, get this super That's constrained awesome. thing in the pre-eBay kind of days when everyone was camping Perks out. Perks of the trade, man. So even yeah. accountants, 
right. it, it, it carried me just far enough to have a job in college. I think between my freshman and sophomore year as an accountant, but all I needed to do was spend one summer doing it to realize that. <laughs> that was not for you, huh? Good knowledge to have. I'll take a few more courses in college. It'll help me with whatever I'm going to end up doing, but yeah. <laughs> Without a doubt, that's funny. That's that's always my most interesting advice when college students come to me is to like, how do I figure out what I want to do? I'm like, do lots of meaningful right. part-time jobs and internships and what you think you want to do when you graduate while there's still time to, right. to course correct. Well, no, without a doubt, I 100% agree with you. Like figure out what you want to do in college, test it, all that kind of fun stuff. Try it out. Nine times out of 10, you really figure it out pretty quickly that that's not something you want to do. And then you have the ability to adjust and course correct. Yeah, and it's changing. There are some schools where you can major in sales and some sales related organizations, no. but it's still not nearly as no. common like to be able to major in marketing or finance or management. No, it's not. You know, I know UCF has a program uh, here in Orlando that's a pretty good program. I know Purdue has a pretty well-known sales program. I know Samford in Birmingham, Alabama has a pretty good sales program. And I think Harvard has one now actually. Yeah. Those are the only four I'm somewhat familiar with or have heard of. So I, I don't know if there, I'm sure there's more, don't get me wrong, but you're right. It's not like getting a degree in marketing as a fundamental course curriculum. It's important too, because in order for your parents to be excited about telling their friends and family about what you're majoring in, it's no. got to be legit. But like, yeah, the work that like Mark Roberge is doing up at Harvard Business School should dramatically change that over time, but the pace, <laughs> pace is pace of change is slow. Without a doubt. So the first big area I wanted to get your mm -hmm. insight on is advice that you'd give to someone that's brand new to selling in a B2B context, regardless of the size of the accounts, what would you tell them to start with to get their feet wet? What do you think is super important for them to be thinking about in the first couple of years as their, their career working and selling into B2B accounts? Yeah, you know, I, and, and this may take a lot of different shapes, forms, and fashions because in some organization you're given a territory and you're giving a set, you're given a set of accounts or wide variety of different scenarios that can go into this. But you know, I, I learned actually pretty late that it's not about quantity, it's about quality. I, I remember the days where I used to have two thousand accounts. I never thought that was enough accounts for me to call. I'm like, we, I, I'm, I don't have enough accounts. And now in today's day and age, it's really the opposite. You can have 5 million accounts, but you really got to find that ICP or that IAP, whatever you want to call it in today's day and age around ABM, that's really in your sweet spot. Like who's going to really, who's going to resonate the message that you have, the value proposition that you're bringing in, what use cases, other clients that you can leverage to that specific industry, sub-industry that's going to resonate so I think getting late, I think really getting laser focused, especially coming into a brand new organization, because you're already going to be overwhelmed from everything else. So how do you really reel it in uh, from a from a target marketing standpoint or target account standpoint? I wish I would have learned that a lot, a lot sooner because I feel like I was doing a whole lot of things, but nothing very efficiently or effectively. I find what's super interesting about that also is being able to look at where the company has been successful in the past, like case mm -hmm. studies, pattern recognition, product market fit. And it's really challenging, I guess, if you go, if you're brand new to B2B and right. the company is a startup and there's right. no track record or pattern recognition to look for with any of this, but especially if you're in any kind of subscription based recurring revenue type thing, like knowing 
who's actually going to be successful with the yep. product is almost as important as knowing who's going to be closable. Right. And I think to piggyback off that, Joshua, you're right. In those situations where there is no portfolio of accounts and you're not quite sure who this is going to resonate with, you know, I, I think that's key for a sales leader, a marketing team, a leadership team. You've got to be extremely agile. You got to test a whole lot, right? Because what you think might resonate or you think the audience you should be chasing, that may not actually be the audience you should be chasing, right? You know, I remember when I very first came into flexing age, we thought we were going to sell to enterprise, like the Walmarts of the world. But after a year of kind of grinding it out, you realize that the sweet spot isn't that. They're the big behemoths, but the path to actually getting your foot in the door in a reasonable amount of time, that you're not going to get bogged down by legal mumbo jumbo and procurement. It's really actually that mid market, which really became our sweet spot. But that came through trial and error, right? That just came through time. And I know that's not the greatest answer because for sales, it's all about today. What can I do today? But test fast with the old saying, fail fast, fail often. I think that's what you have to do. Yeah, being able to figure out the sales cycle where you can win most often is such a big deal. Everyone's always obsessed about the logos. Right. However, it doesn't necessarily need to be the 800 pound gorilla. It doesn't necessarily need to be fortune 500 logos. If you're going after a niche, you know, recognizable companies with a couple hundred employees could be very appealing to other companies in that space that are similar sized or a little bigger or a little smaller. Without a doubt. I think you get the nail on the head. I don't, you know, I don't think logo, they are important. It's always nice to have a, some big logos under your belt because it gives you some credibility, no doubt about it. But I think there's value in actually having the smaller mid-market SMB, whatever you want to call them, and having a pretty diverse portfolio because it shows your ability. If, if in fact, your, your solution is scalable, can resonate with SMB and enterprise, but you know, many times you start talking to a mid-market company and all you have is the behemoth enterprise accounts on your portfolio. They think they're going to be too small of a fish and they're going to get lost. And so, I mean, it can actually be counterproductive from a sales pers uh, perspective to only tout the big logos. I try to make it a point, depending on who I'm calling on, to really find logos that are very similar to them. May not be the exact industry, but from a size standpoint, they're, they're very similar because that lets them know, hey, we're not just dealing with the Under Armors of the world. We're, we're dealing with the Shankos and the smaller organizations that are really innovating and trying to grow very similar to how you are. And that, that seems to resonate with those organizations. How did, so with targeting this size matters a lot, how did the context change a little bit when you move yourself from working with a huge company to working with a smaller company. The last time we were hanging out, you were yeah. working with a company that had been acquired by Salesforce, where right. at, at that time, six, yeah. seven, eight years ago, Salesforce was big enough that uh, everyone, it was a, a, a blue chip was a household name. Everyone knew it. Um, right. how, how did that change a little bit when you're working with a smaller company? You know, it changed pretty drastically. I was actually having this conversation earlier today. You go from define processes, define workflows, like everything is kind of mapped out. Oh, I need case studies. Okay, which case study? You have 4 million case studies to pick from. What industry do you want? Like all that is kind of flushed out. Um, then you go to the startup world and to your point earlier, they've got no logos or they've got very few. Uh, they haven't even thought about case studies. There's no case studies to produce. Like it's really adapting and learning and creating on the fly. 
And that is a big challenge, right? I mean, I, that, it's kind of a curse and a blessing. It's a curse because you don't have it, but it's a blessing because you don't have it. You can actually be a little bit more agile and nimble to really make some adjustments that really, to be honest with you, Joshua, you can't do at a Salesforce. Like if I try to move a little bit to the left, they're going to smack me right back to the right and say, that's not the way we do it. And in all fairness, they should. They have a well-oiled machine and that's fair, but that's not, uh, that's not the innovation that I was really looking for, which is why I found a home more on the startup side of things. But it was a those, challenge, no doubt about it. I remember there's a really interesting question that Mark Reverge, who's the first CRO at, at um, HubSpot, used to use as a conversation starter. You, you have a brand new startup and you gave like four hypotheticals on who your first sales hire should be. Uh-huh. And one was like, it was the top performer in an organization of 500 at a company in your same space. And then it was the VP of sales who had an organization of 500 at a same uh, company in your same space. And I forget what the third choice was, but the fourth one was, it was someone that was an entrepreneur in your space. And what he was trying to get at is like the person that was sales hire number 117 at their company didn't have to deal with the uncertainty of building the playbook on the fly and all the iteration where they kind of had to run back and forth to the product manager who at the time was literally a product manager and not a product management department and say like, hey, this is the third time this month I'm hearing that I could have closed this deal. Why don't we have this feature? (laughs) Right. That that is dead on. I mean, that's a constant thing that we weigh, right? So when we're in interview processes, you know, the common thought process is that we want to hire someone with SaaS experience. Let's go chase the Salesforce sales reps or the Oracle sales reps or whoever, because they have the SaaS background. But to your point, they've also got the rigid playbook. So everything is kind of handed. I don't want to say handed. That's not fair. But, you know, SDRs on their team that are pumping them leads, you know, webinar machines, all these things that they have a well-oiled process in stepping into a startup, a lot of that's going to be on them. And that is an adjustment and not everyone is equipped or should be in that environment. Actually, when you mentioned SDR, it reminded me of something I've been, I saw a couple of times on your LinkedIn feed in the last couple of weeks, you're posing a question about, is it a good idea to cold call prospects (laughs) on their cell phone? (laughs) I was was curious, um, have you gotten any feedback from that? Uh, I've got 564 votes. Okay. I got like three days left. It's got like 16,000 views. It's un, it's un, it's ungodly. It's crazy. <laughs> um, and I only did that uh, because I actually received a call on my cell phone heading into Publix down here in Central Florida. I know they have them down your way as well. Um, and I got to be honest with you, I, it was not well received with me. Um, so. I, I just wanted to kind of get that out there and kind of say, hey, listen, how are we approaching this as a sales organization and as a sales industry? And it's funny, Josh, as you brought that up, that, you know, if you look at that behind the scenes, I can see the breakdown and 60, 40, all that. If you look at the majority of yeses, yes, it's okay to do that. It's predominantly salespeople. If you look at the no's, it's predominantly the people that are being called by the salespeople. Yeah. So, that's a fundamental disconnect between sales and their clients. Like that's a breakdown. So if your clients are saying, that's not the way to communicate, you're only going to upset me by doing that. You're actually doing more harm than good. Now I'm not saying don't do it. If someone's got their cell phone on their business card, on their LinkedIn, that is an open door. Feel free to, but I just, 
I like to challenge, hey, is it the right thing to do? Does it do more harm than good uh, in, in, the, in the greater scheme of things? It's such a different context to with now what we're in because you know nobody was sitting in an office for the last year and a half because you could always count on that if you couldn't if you didn't have a direct number or a mobile number you'd call the main number right. and you know the gatekeeper gets you at least a voicemail. Um, now I guess you're still getting to voicemail last year and a half with like no one's answering. So the question is right. when people come with people staying remote or people is is this really the end of the landline? Yeah, you know, it, I, and it's a good point. I think COVID really shined a light on a lot of things and, and, it, and it exacerbated certain aspects of our industry from a sales perspective. Like I, I never used to get a ton of calls on my cell phone, but since COVID and everybody being remote to your point, that's really the only way of getting a hold of someone. Um, so I think it shined a light on things that do we do this? Do we not do this? But, you know, I've even seen you know, systems cracking down on that. I mean, with Verizon and all these robo killers, like it's a slippery slope to do that. And I know just last week alone, I probably received at least 25 calls on my cell phone that were sales related, not telemarketing, just salespeople in the SaaS market trying to sell me a SaaS product. And I think you're going to see some changes in that as we start to understand both from a prospect and from a sales perspective, what the ramifications might be. So we talked about some great advice for someone that's brand new to B2B. What mm -hmm. recommendations would you have for a peer that came to you that's 10, 20 years into the business and maybe they had a really rough year the last year or maybe their industry was particularly hard hit. They lost a lot of team members. They had a lot of customer churn and they're feeling a sense of burnout. What would yeah. you help? What would you suggest to help them recharge the batteries and get back on track? Yeah, you know, I think it's a good question because I probably, if you're looking at my career, I'm probably on that on that side of the fence more than than the new side. Um, and, and I got to be honest with you, as I've as I've come out of this post COVID, and you know, I, I've kind of taken a bigger, deeper breath, um, and just really kind of taken stock of where I'm at in my career and and with my family, personally and professionally. I think it's just imperative for people that are longer in a tenured role to actually take a step back, get back to the fundamentals, get back to what got you to where you are, get back to the passion that you had, you know, you know, when you very first started this. And that's what I really did. I actually started to pick up a book. I've been reading a book once a week. I've been reading a book a week. So I've been targeting about 20, 25 pages a, a night. And that's kind of what my takeaways are. And I'm just trying to learn what don't I know? There's a lot I don't know in this space. And what can I learn? And can it reinvigorate me a little bit to actually share that with my team or to try something new? And I think that's important because I think when you get to that stage in your career, you become static, you become stale, you become, you become stagnant. And it's really important to mix it up. But I highly recommend taking a step back getting back to the basics, because that's typically what happens is you get so far away from the basics as you get more tenured that you lose your, your, your train of thought and, and, and your roadmap, if you will. Pretty simple uh, philosophy, but that's what I highly recommend. Reading and just being exposed to new ideas to help spark new playbooks and new thought you processes. Podcasts too. <laughs> podcast, without a doubt. I mean, pod, webinars. I mean, webinars, podcasts, and, and I think you bring up a good point on that. And I, that's obviously one of the reasons, you know, I like to do podcasts. I like to listen to them because they are so digestible, right? You know, most of them are pretty concise and to the point. 
You can get through one while you're running or you're walking or you're doing something else. So it's a great consumable platform that I really like. But I'm a big believer. If you're not getting something from one, there's a ton of them out there. Go find something that's really going to resonate with you. And I know there are out there. I've listened to a few that are just fantastic. And there's been a few that I'm like, I'm never listening to that again. It just isn't in my wheelhouse. But yes, podcasts are a great platform to reinvigorate. Yeah, I used to even going back pre-pandemic, going back 10, 15 years before podcasting was really big when people used to tell me they didn't have a lot of time for professional development. I'd ask them like, do you commute? Yes. Mm -hmm. How much time a day are you spending in the car? How much time are you spending driving between meetings? Well, put on, it was, it was audio books back then yeah. or audio CDs. Now it's podcasts. Yeah. And, but anyone that's got a workout, whether it's on the elliptical or running yeah, or going yeah. for a walk, um, I, you, if I did my peak workout every single day, I'd have 30 or 40 hours a month for consuming yeah. that stuff. I think at some point I'm probably on professional development half or two thirds of the time. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I just need to turn it off and put some music on. Yeah. Um, but um, it has a, a lot of time to be able to keep up with everything you need to do from uh, webinars, professional development, training. Uh, interesting thing too, that a lot of people don't think about is I listen to videos a lot of times when I can't watch yeah. them and I'm still getting 90% of it out of it. Yeah. It's just, it's the same way with this. We'll, we're recording on video. We'll have an audio version. Some people will listen. Some people will watch. Some people will read the blog. Right. Hey, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, like there's really no excuse in today's day and age on why you can't professionally develop or develop from a, from a career or professionally or personally or whatever you want to develop from. There, there's really not. Um, you know, I remember the days, I'm sure you do, Joshua, just, you know, I think we're probably pretty close from an age standpoint. And you know, th there was a day where you could just Google something. You could just type it into YouTube. You actually had to go and get a book from the library or, or do some real work to figure it out. Yeah. Um, everything's at your, your disposal. Like everything's at your fingertips on your phone. There's really no excuse to not take advantage of it. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading Cialdini 30 years ago, reading Stephen Covey 30 years ago. There was no YouTube to go to if somebody wanted to no. get the five-minute version of it. <laughs> Right. There's no cliff notes for those. Yeah. I mean, it was like, you got to yeah. get the book. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of that, how does your approach to B2B sales depending, uh, change depending on whether you're talking to someone where you think they're pretty early on in the process versus the middle of the cycle, late process? How, how do you figure out where they are? And, and with that in mind, how does your overall approach tend to change? Yeah, that, that's a tough question. It's a, it's a tough Part for a lot of salespeople to navigate because, you know, we talk about qualification in sales, but the fact of the matter is I'm not a big, I'm a believer in qualifying an opportunity to make sure it's a real opportunity, but believe it or not, there's a lot of solutions out there that are not line item budgeted items. They're not, they're not something that, that are, are required for the business. They're more nice to have than they are need to have. So the old models of band, budget, authority, need, time, really kind of go out the window because you're actually more of an educative sell than you are a line item sell standpoint. So I think it's fundamental. What, I've, what I think is the most imperative to the enterprise sales process is I like to call it herding cats. You've got to be great at deal management. You've got to be great at running multiple things, not in sequence, but in parallel. You know, how do you align different people from your organization to the prospects organization? Because you don't want to wait for one thing to happen before the next thing can happen because that slows down your sales process. 
but you also need to get the prospect, the client, what they need. You need to educate them so they can make a best decision for their business. So, you know, I really rely on coaches and champions. I try to really form a relationship with one, two stakeholders within the organization to really help me navigate. And, and I really approach it in that form. I, I don't put a hard sales press on them. I really probe to understand their business, understand what's important to them, understand what's important to their role, to their boss. So I can say, hey, is there any synergies here? Because I don't wanna waste anyone's time. And I know that their time is valuable, but if there are, then really having them help me navigate that ecosystem or that org chart, whatever you want to call it, to figure out where do those things sync up from a value prop standpoint. So early on, it's really like you're almost like a Columbo. You're an investigator, you're a detective. And you're just really trying to figure out, is there anything here? And if there is, how can you help me? Because this benefits you. How can you help me at least plant the seed and continue down the path of next steps? And that's what I'm always focused on. You know, the old days of always be closing from Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross days, uh, which exposes how old I am. I don't think that's a thing anymore. Um, I say that kind of, yes, it is. No, it's not. But what I mean by that is you're not always closing on, hey, I want the deal done, but you should be closing on what I call micro steps. What are the next logical steps in the process, in, the, in, in their process, your process, and how do we get to those? And sometimes I'll be honest with you, it's very small. Like sometimes they're so minute. It's like, are we even moving forward here? So that's the process I undergo with these opportunities, these large retailers that we work with in, in my world to try and figure out what the landscape is and then figure out a path forward. Yeah, I mean, the, the, if any decent size account, it's always going to be a committee um, and there's always multiple people. And the, the most challenging part is what you see on the surface looking at their about page, looking them up on Sales Navigator doesn't tell you the subtle nuances that like, you know, Bob's got to sign off on this, but Bob is, uh, is really 20 years behind the times on technology. So we got to go to Bob's direct report, right. who's earlier on in their career, who's more uh, risk, is more comfortable mm -hmm. with the risk and is more likely to be the champion. That's just the stuff you're not going to get without having an internal champion who to, can give you the, uh, you the lay of the land. You could be more accurate on that, Josh, if you try. Like, and on top of all that, you're not going to get the political landscape of the organization from a navigator. Like who likes who, who's always going to yeah. go against another person. Like you've got to be able to jockey those ebbs and flows that to be quite candid, you can't control, but you've got to know how to navigate. And without an internal stakeholder or champion, it, you'll never make that leap within the account. It's just, it, it, you may, but it may just take you forever and a day to get there. And by that time, uh, you're probably not having a job because you missed your quota, you know, this past year. So that's a challenge for any sales rep. Or they've moved on. Or they've moved on. Yeah, you, exactly. That, that's another great point. Like as soon as you start building traction, they move on to another company. You're like, great. Now I got to start from scratch again. And maybe you have an internal champion in their new job and maybe that deal closes really fast and the other one doesn't, but yeah. Right. And in retail, you know, it probably happens a lot. I mean, it's pretty prominent where people go from one retailer to the next and that's a good thing. But I've had it where, you know, um, someone that was a naysayer in one of my deals went to an account that I actually was making great progress in. And then they came in and they were like, no, we've had converse. Like those, just those things you can't account for. You try to, you, 
you know, I'm a big believer when I'm talking to my sales reps or I'm really kind of doing a deep dive on an opportunity. I always ask myself, what am I not thinking of? What can come up in the 11th hour that we're not prepared for or can derail this deal? And sometimes thinking of it pessimistically, it allows you not to be blinded by the optimism of a big commission check or the big ARR deal that you're chasing, but to really be pragmatic and saying, man, I've never actually talked to Josh and, and he's three people above my contact. And I think he's really essential to the deal and I've not been able to pin down 30 minutes. So behind closed doors, I have no idea what Josh is saying about flexing gates. And that is a big red flag because he, with the, with the stroke of the pen can say, no, we're not doing it. I'm putting that budget somewhere else. And your champion is going to come to you and say, hey, I can't do anything. And that is, those are things you've got to be, you've got to be real in addressing when you're, when you're talking about your opportunities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What do you, with that in mind, what do you see as the biggest mistake that you see people making in, in B2B sales? Is it blowing through the need to validate the other levels and the other stakeholders? Is it thinking too optimistically, too much happy yeah. years? I think you're the nail on that. It's the optimistic because the optimistic, um, it lulls you into thinking I can skip, right? Uh, so I'm optimistic. Josh is my guy. He loves me. He loves what we're doing. He loves everything. I don't need to talk to Sam, Henry, Jessica, and Tabitha. He's going to push it through. And you get lulled into, hey, I don't need to get more stakeholders involved. I don't need to confirm budget. I don't need to do the steps that you know in the back of your head as a salesperson are going to come up in the 11th hour and you're going to be caught behind the eight ball but you get lulled into that because you're overly optimistic and that is a big challenge i mean i, I find myself i i still I, that's a big challenge for myself is really trying to play both sides of that and saying hey do i have blinders on here what am i not seeing why is this not moving and that's really a challenge. And I always try to get an outside perspective. Hey, here's the status of this. Here's what I've done. Here's where I'm at. Here's what the next step should be. What am I missing? And just hearing feedback. And sometimes, I, to be honest with you, I like to hear feedback, maybe not even from another salesperson, just from someone else, kind of a layman, maybe within our organization. Well, have you thought of that? And sometimes those type of things jumpstart different ideas. So to your point, I think optimism is the biggest challenge, mistake, over-optimism, I should say, uh, is the biggest you know, fundamental mistake from a B2B standpoint. To what extent do you see systems, processes, CRM deal stages helping to prevent some of that? Or is it really a matter, do you know enough about what the steps should be to get it into, some, get it into a methodology that can be followed or tracked like that? Yeah, I think they're all good. Like, I think you have to have a process, right? That's the only way you can replicate anything. You can, the only way you can scale is to have a replicatable process. So I think a, a process is, is, is fundamental. I think the technology to help you manage it and drive efficiency and effectiveness is fantastic. But, you know, from a tech stack standpoint, it's only as good as what you put into it. And it's not going to take the human element and have you done your due diligence uh, to kind of move that deal forward. So from a technology standpoint and a process standpoint, it's only as good as the human that's really driving it. If you're not following the process, you're skipping steps because you're overly optimistic or, hey, I just can't get to the decision maker. So I'm going to set shop here or I'm just going to be really stagnant here. It really just comes down to the individual 
um, and how they manage deals. I mean, I, I know I talked about a little bit earlier and I think right outside optimism, I gotta be honest with you, deal management, is, that is not a core function of a lot of salespeople. You know, selling ultra complex deals where you have eight, nine, 10, 15 people that have to put their stamp on it at the minimum, but eight, nine of them have to work with you alongside you every step of the way. And they got to give you buy-in every step. That's a lot because you're managing availability. You're managing their schedule. You're managing what they like, don't like. And sometimes they contradict one another. And what they like actually is what the other person doesn't like. Those nuances, that's what makes it a challenge from that standpoint. Coming down the whole stretch, looking at the big picture, what do you see going on right now that's going to fundamentally change what it means to be successful in B2B sales? What do you think we're going to look back on now, 18, 24 months out, 24 months ahead of where we are right now and, and see that, oh yeah, that was just a major inflection point? Yeah, I, I think it kind of dovetails into the, the technology piece. I mean, I think we went through this wave where these cool technologies, which I, I, we use outreach over here, there's sales loft, there's HubSpot, there's a lot of these automation tools that puts it into a sequence and a cadence and all that kind of fun stuff, which is fantastic from an efficiency standpoint. But if it's not managed the correct way, it becomes very vanilla, very saturated because everyone's sending out the same message and it gets harder and harder to separate yourself from the noise. Uh, what is, I, talking to someone the other day and they were saying on average, a decision maker at any potential you know, retail or organization is getting 60, 70 sales related emails a day. They're getting on average 20 phone calls pre-COVID, but maybe now on cell phone, we don't know. Like there's so much noise. I think what you're gonna look back in three, four or five years, the differentiator between the great salespeople versus the mediocre is how they separate from that noise. Like, what do they do differently? How do they continue to personalize? How do they understand the buying behavior? Um, and what I mean by that, I'll give you a real example. Uh, someone, after I put that poll up, you know, I, I, I don't hide my profile. It's, it's visible to anyone. I must've got 30 different requests. Hey, can we meet? Can we meet? Can we meet? There was only one person that said, hey, I actually saw your poll. And I understand that there's a challenge that we're facing. Hey, should we reach out on the cell phone? So I want to be respectful before I reach out. Is it okay for me to call you on the cell phone? And here's kind of what I'm doing in the space. If they at least tried to connect the dots between something I posted to make it more personable versus just batching and blasting and sending something out. And I think that's always been a kryptonite for sales. It's a challenge to do personalization at scale. And you know this from a marketing standpoint, it's just such a challenge. And I think it's really impacting sales. Let's go back to our original conversation. You don't need 2000 accounts because you can't really personalize at that level. You need to get down to 50. And within those 50, find your top three or four personas that you can reach out to. And then systematically approach those in a very personalized manner. You know, scour their LinkedIn. What is the company talking about on their activity? Are they active on LinkedIn? Are they involved in any kind of charitable organizations? Are you reading about that they're big avid golfers? You know, they like cigars, they're big whiskey drinkers, all that stuff, which on its own may not mean a lot. But when you start to connect those dots, 
you can start to separate yourself from the pack. And I think that is what we're going to look back at. We're going to say, how did you get those deals? And you're going to find that, hey, this is how I got it. And this is the level I took to get those opportunities on, on the docket. So the reality is just as it's important for the company as the employer to build the brand, the sales professional intensely needs a brand to be able to differentiate, which argues for probably putting deep roots down in a particular vertical. Without particular a doubt. Business. Yeah. Without a doubt. I, I think it's our job as salespeople. It's not all on the company to do employer branding and employee, you know, all that stuff. I think you've got to develop your own personal brand. If you're, I, I just fundamentally, I'm always shocked when I go to a salesperson's LinkedIn page and obviously their profile picture fits missing. It's just like, come on, man. Like, and then there's no activity. I, I don't even care if you're resharing someone else's articles on an RSS feed, at least do that. I mean, that's at least something, but to not take that and leverage that from a thought leadership standpoint, you're only doing yourself a disservice and then trying to reiterate to get better and get more of a thought leadership role, doing podcasts like you and I are doing. You know, I, I know I reached out to you, Josh, hey, you're looking for guests. And that's how this kind of came about. There's no harm in reaching out. Like that's what we do on a day-to-day -day basis in sales. We're constantly reaching out. Reach out to build your own personal brand, do a podcast. Those things are fantastic. Always looked at as well, if you're prospecting someone and they have a very weak or almost non-existent LinkedIn presence, and you're selling technology, that's right. probably not going to be your digital transformation champion. Along the same lines, if you have to really twist their arm to get them to turn the webcam on on the Zoom, <laughs> the same thing. So it's really so it's interesting. It's on both sides. It's not right. just on the prospect side. It's on the sales professional side. I can't imagine a scenario where someone in B two B sales, especially mid market or enterprise, survives the next five or ten years if they're allergic to being on webcam and being in videos and don't have basic competency with LinkedIn. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think, hey, it is an indicator. Is this going to be my champion? Is this the one that's going to push this innovative technology through the organization? Probably not. Uh, but to your point, yeah, I, you know, I, I think back to my, my dad and, and my mom and, you know, their, their challenge of adopting technology. And that's always been top of mind for me as I've gotten older. I'm no spring chicken. Uh, but I've always tried to stay as much ahead of the curve as I could. You know, the zoo, I'm big on a beta list and product hunt, seeing what's the next thing out there so I can at least be aware of it. So if it impacts me in any way, I'm at least, I have a knowledge of it that I can start adapting. And I, I think far too many people just say, hey, this is what I've always known and I'm not going to adopt Zoom. I'm going to go face to face. I mean, if that's what you live by, you died on the vine when COVID hit because there's no more face to face in today's environment, in that environment, I should say. So you're right. You probably are phasing your way out of a job. Or if the unit economics simply don't support it. I've had those yeah. conversations with startup CEOs many, many times over the years. And early on, they'll spend a couple thousand dollars to go visit a client for a $199 sale. But after a while, like that either has to go totally low touch or even 10 X that it's not going to be face to face. It's gotta, gotta be inside. Right. I, I think that, you know, I think that's a good study or a good exercise for people. And even including myself is to, to do an assessment of the closed deals over the past four years and see how many of those deals where face-to-face -face was involved versus a Zoom or a video or only web share. And to really see 
how much did it impact the deal from, from, a, from a sales cycle standpoint and actually getting it over the goal line? I think you're right. I think you're going to find out, especially post-COVID, that the face-to-face -face is not as important as it used to be. I think there's a lot of value in meeting someone face-to-face -face and actually shaking a hand. Don't get me wrong. There's an intrinsic value there. But I don't think it's mission critical. I don't think it's a deal breaker if you can't do that. And five years ago, six years ago, 10, somewhere in that neck of the woods, man, a deal just couldn't get done on an enterprise level without meeting someone face to face. Yeah. I think a lot of what's changed in the last 12 or 18 months is the bar just went up. If before the bar was a $10,000 deal, for example, maybe it's a 50,000 or even in some cases, a $100,000 deal that yeah. can get done without flying a whole team yeah. out to a, out to a client. So there yeah. will, it sounds like it'll still be there to a certain degree, but the methods and a lot of it too, depends on the digital assets that are deployed on the website and the whole structure of the deal and being able to start small and yep. phase in and the commit and everything. But yeah, Sam, this has been super helpful. I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on the podcast today. If someone wants to learn more about what you're up to or connect with you, you're active on LinkedIn, right? Is that the best place for someone to reach you? Or? Yeah, by, by all means, if uh, if you want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm one of those open connectors. I, I love to connect on LinkedIn. I'm happy to help in any way I possibly can. As you mentioned earlier, we, we, we are going to be launching a, a podcast here in the next couple of months. We've got all of our interviews and content very similar to what we're doing here lined up. So you'll be able to find more about that on my LinkedIn profile. And then obviously, you know, heading up the sales team at Flex Engage here in beautiful Orlando, Florida. If we can be a resource in any way, by all means, I'm happy to have all those conversations via LinkedIn. That's just uh, FlexEngage.com? Yep, FlexEngage.com. Awesome. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Sam Capra, who is the VP of Sales from Flex Engage. Sam, thanks for all your help and sharing so generously today. Really appreciate it. Stay safe and look forward to being able to see you face to face again real soon. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Thanks again, Joshua. You have a fantastic night. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the B2B Digitized Podcast. To subscribe and leave a review, check us out at b2bdigitize.com or wherever you like to consume podcast episodes, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube.